Hi, I'm Richard O'Brien. It's the 9th of July at 9.19pm, and this is Now Here We Are 30 Years Later, a memoir in Mountain Goat Songs. Each episode looks at a year in my life through the lens of a song by John Darnielle. Today we're in 1995, and the song is The Recognition Scene. John Darnielle can be a hard guy to keep up with. It's not by chance that two of the first six entries in this series have been about songs with going to in the title. Even from a small room in Norwalk, Daniel's thoughts have been consistently pointed outwards. In 1995 alone, he sang in the voices of characters living in Utrecht, Tahiti, and downtown Seoul, with correspondents reaching out to them from the Hunan province and from all the way across the country in Palm Springs. Only a few months earlier, he and bassist Rachel Ware had played their first batch of East Coast shows, discovering in the process some inspiring infrastructure. Driving from Massachusetts to Long Island, Daniel said, I saw a sign and it said Throg's Neck Bridge, and I thought, you know, I'm from California, our bridge would be called, you know, something Spanish bridge. And so I was like, Throgs? These people are from a different universe. Awesome, I gotta use that. Setting aside the universe-expanding possibilities of Throgs, Daniel hadn't been to the majority of the places mentioned in these songs at the time of writing. Nonetheless, his enthusiasm for local detail brings us most of the way with him on these imaginative journeys. In going to Port Washington, Daniel might actually have seen how the trees of New York looked, all decked out in their best fall colours, how its particular local sunlight might bring out the highlights in a lover's hair. But as listeners, in just the same way, it feels as if our own eyes are opening for the first time on the tropical hardwoods of Bolivia populated with leaping monkeys and wildcats I had never seen, or the red brick building by a bright green field in Denmark, a very old country of the kind the singer was starting to visit in his first European tour in April of 1995. Having long abandoned the idea of becoming a professional musician, suddenly his songwriting was opening up new spaces to him, and not only geographical ones. After the breakup of a four-year relationship in which he'd been going to Mass every Sunday, John was feeling himself to be on his way out of the Catholic Church. At Los Angeles airport on his way to these European dates, the first time he had ever flown internationally, he accepted a copy of The Science of Self-Realization from Aishwarya Das, a member of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. By the end of the same year, if I have my timings right, for their first Christmas together, John's new girlfriend, Lalitri, had given him a book of maps as a present. But of course, Daniel's interest in place and its meanings long predates a knowing gift from his future wife, or the mixed blessings and expanded touring schedule. In the grim hour when I briefly considered pitching this project to an academic publisher, I imagined that its title would end up being something like John Daniel and the Romance of Place. That version would presumably have had to start with this anecdote. I think it's because when I became conscious of being a person, when I was very small, I knew that I was from Indiana, but I had never seen Indiana. I was born there in Bloomington. But we moved when I was like a year old. I always had a sense of a place that was far away from where I was. In another interview, he refers to it as a mythical country. My family before the divorce moved several times, and after that we moved a whole bunch more times, and so I don't have an anchor to a single place. Probably as a result of that, I'm a little more attenuated to when people do feel close identification to place, whether they say it aloud or not. As someone who grew up in the same house, in the same small village, from birth to the age of 18, my sense of place was somewhat narrower. For most of my time living in West Deeping, it didn't even have a shop. Though in my late teens, someone opened a short-lived artisan glassblowers. 
My old English teacher, Carol Atherton, had a quote pinned on her classroom wall from Graham Swift's novel Waterland, set in the region, which has always stuck with me. To live in the Fens is to receive strong doses of reality. The great flat monotony of reality. The great empty space of reality. How do you surmount reality, children? How do you acquire, in a flat country, the tonic of elevated feelings? In a blog post this year, Dr. Atherton expanded further on Swift's description. The Fens are a weird landscape. Huge skies, flatness, and the constant presence of water pumped out from the land into drains and ditches, gleaming straight lines of silver. No broad sunlit uplands. No moment of the sublime. I didn't, for all this, totally share local poet John Clare's conviction that the world's end was at the edge of the horizon and that a day's journey was able to find it. Perhaps at least in part because of my dad's relationship to Ireland, where he spent the first five years of his own life being looked after by his maternal grandmother, and which he'd always had a non-too-subtle habit of describing wistfully as his one true home. I was from here, but my parents were car commuters, two in a growing wave of urban transplants. And though our elderly neighbours had spent their whole lives in the area, far fewer people than in Clare's Day now made their living from working the land. On a webpage for its 14th century church, West Eping is characterised as a village of around 120 houses and a population of approximately 270, spanning all age groups. But this latter phrase comes as news to me. The village school had shuttered in the 1970s. Instead, I started at St. Augustine's Roman Catholic Primary School in the Georgian town of Stamford, six miles away. At some point in my first year there, my family visited an exhibit about the Canterbury Tales, where I had a photo taken of myself in the stocks. Determining dates for this image in a text exchange with my mum was more complicated than expected. Apparently, there is at least one other picture of me standing in the stocks as a child. I also brought back a leaflet about my school's namesake, the 5th century Bishop of Hippo and author of the Confessions, to show my headmaster. This does now seem like the sort of thing you'd be more likely to do if, growing up, there were hardly any children your own age in your immediate environment. As my wife commented last week when she visited the place where I grew up for the first time, after a couple of days exploring the local streams and fields, and sitting out in my mum's lovingly tended garden at night to watch the bats fly overhead, no wonder you know so much. There's nothing to do here except read. John Daniel's childhood was very unlike mine, but his wide-ranging curiosity, or what Grayson Haver Curran calls his aggressively absorptive mind, clearly set in early. As a boy, he used to call Indiana on Christmas morning to find out what the weather was like. And at some point between this and starting an undergrad degree in English and Classics at Pitzer College, Daniel notes that he read too much Arthur Conan Doyle and got this idea that a gentleman should know a lot about one thing and plenty about most everything else. The studies he was finishing up in 1995 must have further deepened these tendencies. Things could have gone further, as he told Bandcamp in explaining the source of the song title Exegetic Chains. In many ways, what I am is a failed academic, right? My goal coming out of college was to get into grad school and teach Latin or English. Well, I didn't get into grad school, so my consolation prize is that I became the Mountain Goats. You could do worse, right? I don't have any complaints. But at the same time, when I read this stuff, I remember how bad I want to actually know the stuff that the people who have doctorates know. Whatever happened around the end of John's BA was the opposite of the fortuitous fortune of going to Port Washington, the constellations gently aligning. As he explained to Joseph Fink, one of his letters of reference was never submitted. The teacher who was supposed to write it had fallen terminally ill and presumably, understandably, wasn't on top of her correspondence. 
So Darnell's formal academic career to date culminated in a translation of Silver Age Latin playwright Seneca's tragedy, Faestes, whose closing dialogue Darnell describes as so brutal, even after centuries of horror, it's shocking, submitted for his senior thesis. Around the same time, John formed an ephemeral band with Lelitri called the Seneca Twins, and wrote a Greek tragedy final on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. In an interview with a Kansas college radio station, he mentions a second thesis in English, with both projects exploring how readers juggle the fact we all need narrative, with the terrifying prospect that if you want to be honest, none of it makes sense, and if none of it makes sense, then you don't have any moral or ethical obligations. Speaking of his own work, he connects its approach to that of classical tragedy, which is trying to impose connections where there are none, trying to state cause and effect where cause and effect do not exist. Any individual piece of writing is therefore the attempt to put order on chaos, with narrative as a way of explaining to ourselves some of the world's violences so that it doesn't all feel so pointless that we're tempted to reproduce them. What I'm doing here is also some kind of attempt at imposing order. My own book of maps. My way of trying to put straight lines on things. This post was supposed to be... This episode was supposed to be my engagement with the sorts of things John was reading in college. Getting my head around some of the classical reading source Getting my head around some of the classical literary sources that, as one of the people who have doctorates, a lecturer with a PhD in Shakespeare studies, I feel I should have read years ago. My Latin extends to Carnem Estin Mensa. My secondary school's last teacher of the subject left the year I joined, and I picked up a couple of basic phrases from a lunchtime club run by his former students, who I now realise were some extraordinarily dedicated seventeen year olds. I've got plenty of friends with deep knowledge of the subject, and on a break from writing this episode, I even helped my wife answer a trivia question on a phone app about Doric columns. But as with so many things from my undergrad education, for a long time classics felt to me like something which lived behind an impenetrable wall of class. That if you hadn't picked it up in private schools and summer camps, you'd never be on a level playing field with the people to whom it was second nature. It's my loss, but I didn't know that then. All of which to say, while little mortifies me more than not having done the reading, I should probably have realised I wasn't likely to be able to give myself a full classical education in a fortnight. But then I'm not sure Robert Fagel's translation of Antigone gave me a clearer understanding of the recognition scene than John's live comments, which indicate what the concept is about for him. A true story about a moment in every relationship where you look at the person you love and you think inside yourself, well, I don't actually love you anymore. What am I going to do now? The simultaneous knowledge that this is the only love I've ever known, and that I'm going to miss you when you're gone, is not an emotional state unique to Greek tragedy. This does, however, usefully illustrate something Franklin Bruno said to John in a shrimpalicious mutual interview for a zine linked with their shared record label in 1994. More consciously than a lot of songwriters, your imagery comes from, one might call it for lack of a better word, traditional themes. John agrees, or at least asserts, that I don't read modern literature, so most of the stuff that influences me is stuff that's so dated at this point, and so largely unread, that it seems novel. Once you get over the urge to try and say something absolutely new, then you realise you have a vast, rich body of images to work with. A more recent interview sees him reflecting on the miracle of memory and the potential for a terrifyingly direct communication between performer and audience in oral tradition. I think a lot about how by the time people start writing down the songs that they know, especially in English, they've been singing those songs for a very long time. As pirates burn the boats of a corrupt Roman governor's love rival at the end of Song for Cleomenes, 
Daniel inhabits the voice of a community who gather in the Sicilian harbour to hear what were already the old songs by the time of Cicero. The whole thing reminds me of The Ruin, an old English fragment I studied on a course on medieval poetry, in which a poet writing maybe two centuries before 1066 brought the Norman invasion describes life in the shadow of a Roman wall, like and grey and stained with red, which has already experienced one reign after another, and whose mighty builders now lie in the hard grasp of earth. A hundred generations later, this red-curved roof parts from its tiles of the ceiling vault, but the speaker can still imagine the days when the wall enclosed all in its bright bosom where the baths were, hot in the heart. The last few lines following this are riddled with lacunae, the poem seemingly crumbling to dust before the reader's eyes, when I tried to track down the provenance of the translation I've been citing by Jack Watson, the link provided was no longer operable. The Anglo-Saxon Poetry Project led to a spam post marketing the Kindle ebook reader. Something about this reminds me of John adliving some of his favourite lines of poetry, largely off the mic, at the end of live performances of Tollen Man, a song inspired by a college archaeology textbook. The resigned goodbye, goodbye, goodbye of the final sung line in the eight-line song turns out not to be the end at all. Over furious strumming, we might just be able to make out that the scene has shifted from the cooked wild grasses and ceremonial shoes of prehistoric Denmark to the rain moving like silken strings down a Bournemouth window in the 19th century in a poem by Thomas Hardy, or to other worlds conjured up by Shakespeare or John Berryman, whose work the young Daniel transcribed into notebooks to see how it felt to write down lines like these. He told something similar to the young O'Brien when I first interviewed him in 2007, and when I asked him, of course, about his literary influences. Berryman is the big one, that merging of high and low diction and of personal and broader themes. For 20 years, I've been trying to hit the vein he hits. Other favourite authors cited in his discussion with Franklin Bruno 13 years earlier included Chaucer, Horace, Petronius, Catullus, Juvenal, Faulkner and Yeats. This might seem to make his influences a distillation of the white male western canon, and to an extent, those guys are in there. But the first Mountain Goats tape, Taboo 6, The Homecoming, recorded before the start of John's BA, already makes reference to Mahayana Buddhism, and by 1996, its author had become a practising Hare Krishna, making regular offerings to household deities, the only person wearing a bead bag to the post office in Kolo, Iowa. Lyrics in these college years also draw on Nahuatl poetry and Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. In whatever context, something that seems to engage Daniel when he's reading is the spark of recognition. The closing stanza of Berryman's Tampa Stump begins with a line whose resignation, whose need to reconcile righteous anger with mercy, is familiar to anyone who has suffered an irreversible loss, i.e. to all of us. Ah, an antiquity, a chatter of ghosts. The recognition scene, the opening song on Sweden, refers to a different kind of recognition, and one less likely to provide much immediate comfort. The title is a translation of anagnorisis, a term which Aristotle defined as a change from ignorance to knowledge, and thus to either love or hate, on the part of the personages marked for good or evil fortune. What I imagine appealed to Daniel about the phrase was that sense of sudden escalation of the bottom dropping out of a moment under the weight of some force more powerful than human agency, our normal relation to the shape of things breaking off like a dodgy doorknob. This is what connects two young lovers, opportunistic thieves beside themselves at the luck of finding three months' worth of candy unguarded, 
with the extremities of the Greek tragic stage. The shared experience of everybody who thinks they've been acting independently and just deciding what they were going to do, realising that they're totally fucked. Thinking about John's college curriculum, these ideas resonate both with Antigone, the text he's describing on stage there, and with things fall apart. The differences between them, needless to say, are many and various, and I'm not a comparative literature specialist. But both texts might have spoken with an echoing intensity to a reader with his own developing interests in communicating heightened states of feeling. Both depict worlds of agonising intergenerational conflict, watched over by potentially vengeful ancestors, chiding oracles, and gods capable of terrible flowering rage. Both feature striking escalations of violence, banishment from a community governed by strict laws and ritual, and the troubling presence of a body left above ground without due burial. I'll remind you of the old man in the Sudois Valley, the first known hominin to be carefully placed in the earth, and of the old blood soaked into the soil of California, seeping up into the blossoms of the jacaranda. These are the kinds of things that don't appear on any map. Daniel glosses Berryman's line about antiquity as a reference to inescapable formative years, the things that made us who we are as distant as ancient Rome and the people who lived there. A distance which optimistically suggests the past can't really hurt us anymore. Unless, of course, as it often turns out, it does. This episode was written and produced by me, Richard O'Brien. Most of the songs featured in this week's entry can be found on the Spotify playlist at the bottom of the newsletter. Thanks to John Daniel for letting me quote from his songs. The sources of all other quotes are given in the show notes and linked directly on the Substack page. You can find us on Instagram at 30 underscore years underscore later, where I post new episodes and mess around with a Panasonic RX-FT500 boombox, which I bought on eBay. Here's the start of one experiment. So if you have any idea how a recording like this might have been mastered in the early 90s, feel free to get in touch. Twitter as at NotRockyHorror. If you enjoyed the show, you can always leave us a rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to help more people discover it, or you can always just tell your few remaining friends. This week, Richard is getting into mortgage paperwork. <laughs>